So uh, we, what's amazing to me is we've been preparing for this event for the last 19 years in this class, um, trying to figure out uh, ethics for, for scenarios like this, but I still feel wholly unprepared, even after 19 years of trying to figure it out. I don't know about you guys, I still feel like uh, when it comes now that people actually ask me real life about ethics questions, I'm uh, <laughs> very nervous to answer. So I'm going to try to address one of the major questions that seems to be coming up. It's happening in other places in the world and happening really right here in this great country of ours, um, even now or very soon, uh, which is the question of, of triage and when you have limited resources, who gets those resources and how do we dole out the resources? Um, so that it's relevant, obviously, to, to on a micro level or even a macro level to the masks and the ma you know all the equipment issues with uh, even the testing, who gets the testing, who doesn't get the testing, um, who um, who gets a ventilator. Um, so I'm going to just play a quick clip here. If everyone could just mute themselves. Meanwhile, if everyone can mute themselves or I'll, I can mute you because it's annoying when we hear your dog barking in the background. Um, so I'm going to mute everybody if I figure out how to do that. I'm going to mute everyone again. If you have a question, you raise your hand and then we'll unmute you. Or you could unmute yourself if you have a question. Okay, so right now everyone's muted. Feel free to unmute yourself if you need to say something important. Okay, so um, I'm, I'm going to start off. So again, the question is, I'd like to address this question of um, scarce resources, which clearly it seems to be we're having that issue currently. And we've addressed it numerous times over the past 20 years, but I'll try to address it today. Again, everything I say is not to be taken in the literal sense. Speak to your local rabbi and medical person and uh, professional and attorney before taking any advice from me. Um, so I'm going to start with, first of all, Governor Como um, spoke last night, or spoke many times, but this is a clip. I'm going to try to see if we can show everyone. I don't know if, where my camera is. I'm going to put the sound next to my mic. But this is really the situation that he's facing in New York, which I think many states will be facing very soon. So I'm going to play this clip of Dov Governor Cuomo. The capacity Cuomo. is limited. They're technical pieces of equipment. They're not manufactured in two days or four days or seven days or ten days. I'm not ventilators. So this is a critical and desperate need for ventilators. FEMA is sending us 400 ventilators. These are on the news this morning. We are sending 400 ventilators to New York. 400 ventilators? I need 30,000 ventilators. You want a pat on the back for sending 400 ventilators? What are we going to do for 400, with 400 ventilators when we need 30,000 ventilators? You're missing the magnitude of the problem, and the problem is defined by the magnitude. FEMA says we're sending 400 ventilators. Really? What am I going to, what am I going to do with 400 ventilators when I need 30,000? You pick the 26,000 people who are going to die because you only sent 400 ventilators. Okay, so that was Governor Como. We're not deciding whether you like him or not. Or Business is covered by next year. Sure. Share their life certificate. Whether you wanted to run for president or not. But uh, we, but that is, it's a real problem whether you 
think it's hard to disagree with him in that sense. Someone's going to have to choose who gets those ventilators and who doesn't. Um, there's a story I saw two days ago on Jerusalem Post. So I'll just read you quick, quickly. Um, actually, that's not it. Israeli doctor. This is from the Jerusalem Post. Israeli doctor in Italy. We no longer help those over 60. Dr. Guy Peleg told Israeli television that in northern Italy, the orders are not to allow those over 60 access to respiratory machines. Um, so in Italy, and I'll just read you quickly some highlights of this article, so Italy has suffered more coronavirus fatalities than China. This is from, by the way, March 23rd, two days ago, with 4,825 confirmed deaths and 5,000 confirmed patients in the last 24 hours, Channel 12 reported on Sunday. Israeli MD Guy Pelag, who is currently working to save lives in Parma, Italy, told Channel 12 that things are only getting worse as the number of patients keeps growing. As the department receives coronavirus patients who are terminally ill, the focus is to allow patients to meet loved ones and communicate with them. Huh? Pelag said from the, what he sees and hears in the hospital, the instructions are not to offer access to artificial, artificial respiratory machines to patients over 60, as such machines are limited in number. Okay, so, and the article goes on. So it's pretty scary stuff. That means in this scenario, only me and Ron would get uh, respirators. Um, so me and Ron are good, but all you other guys, sorry. So um, so the the question becomes, obviously, this is a very real question. By the way, I snoped, I snoped it just to see if it's true. So um, Snopes does, has, has Italy stopped treating the elderly in the COVID-19 pandemic? So Snopes um, says uh, it's a mixture, if it's true. What's true? Italian healthcare workers who are overwhelmed with COVID-19 could be faced with decisions about allocating limited life-saving treatment to those with the most likelihood to live longer upon survival. What's false? However, Italy hasn't abandoned elderly patients to die. Instead, Italian healthcare workers, when faced with more patients than available equipment and capacity to treat them, may possibly be forced to prioritize treatment of those with the highest likelihood of surviving long term. So basically, they're saying it's true, but they don't want to say it's true. Um, but it is true, in other words. So, so again, so it's a, this is a real question. It's a serious question. Um, so I'm going to read you, and the question is, how does the Torah address this issue of prioritizing, of, of who to give um, treatment, and how do we prioritize who we, who we give treatment to? Can everyone hear me, by the way? Shim, you good? I can't wake Oh, you're, you're muted. Manny, you're there? I, we can't see you, but that's 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 good. We're fine with that. We love you, but we don't see you for some reason. Yeah, you press where it says uh, video on the bottom. There's a such a picture of a video recorder. You just click on that. Yes, allow. Oh, you now did. See that? Amazing. Okay. Um, okay. Now, so so again, so the the, the I'm just going to read you two different views here. One is from uh, a book, Paul Ramsey, the patient as a person, who was an ethicist who 
well, this book came out, I think, in 1970, 1973. Um, he says like this, he says, when the ultimate of life is that is the value at stake just to who is Paul Ramsey can anyone tell us Shelley do you know who Paul Ramsey is you're right, you're, not, you're muted one second I believe he was a, a, a Christian ethicist who, who taught in Princeton a Yale grad who taught in Princeton something like that from what I remember okay, okay so Anyway, in his book, The Patient as a Person says like this, when the ultimate of life is the value at stake and when not all lives can be saved, can reasonably be argued that men should stand aside as far as possible from the choice who shall live and who shall die. Random selection is preferable, not simply because life is a value incommensurate with all other and so not negotiable by bartering one's man's worth against another's. It is sustained also because we have no way of knowing how really and truly to estimate a man's social worth. So he's basically saying, um, you know, just let uh, nature take its course. May the best man win. That's what it sounds to me like he's saying. Which clearly, as we'll see, is not the Jewish view. Um, and, and so I'll just read you from another book. Somebody, somebody named Rabbi Walter Wurzberger, Ethics of Responsibility. Um, let me just see when he, this guy lived. I don't remember the details. He died around 25 years ago. He wrote a book called Ethics of Responsibility. He was a professor in NYU. He says like this, As in lifeboat ethics, some rational system of priorities should be devised rather than resorting to random selection of patients. As painful as it may be to play God and determine who shall live as a result of our intervention and who shall die as the consequence of our non-intervention, we cannot abdicate this responsibility. Random choice can hardly qualify as a more humane method to resolve our dilemmas. Okay, so he's saying very clearly that uh, we don't um, we don't leave it just to random. We don't randomly let it let uh, let it decide by itself. We have to have a system which decides who gets the treatment and who doesn't. Okay, um, so the question is what again? What is the Torah's uh, view? of that treatment. And obviously this is very complicated. There's so many factors. I'll just, and, and we're not going to probably be able to come to a final answer today. Hopefully by next week we still won't need to, won't have to apply the question and we'll be able to continue the question next week. But, um, Alan, can you hear us? Okay, good. So, um, so the first, the first thing I want to discuss is we, we, I want to make it clear that there's two different questions we're discussing. Um, I'll tell you what we're not discussing, then we'll get to what we are discussing. We're discussing the question of, well, first we are discussing, what I want to discuss today is third party, let's say in this case the government, the hospitals, the healthcare workers, um, they need to decide. They have X amount of supplies, masks, medicine, ventilators, who to give that to. Okay, that's, that's our discussion today. We're not discussing, there's a question of, let's say, saving yourself over saving someone else. Because that's very clear. Allah, we've discussed that many times, where if you, if I, there's a concept in the Torah, it's learned out from a verse in the Torah, Bekiva, um, which says uh, explicitly, that means your life takes precedence over other lives. It's a verse in Parsha Kedoshim, I believe, which says, or actually, uh, I think it's Kedoshim, maybe Re, where it says, um, 
in the laws of charity, it says, your brother shall live with you. That means, if, let's say, I would own, I have masks that I might need, or I have a, a, a testing kit for, for COVID-19 that I might need for someone in my family, I'm not obligated to give it up, even if, according to the criteria of priorities, that person might uh, benefit more from it. Because if there's any danger to my life, my obligation is not only permission, um, you have to save your life before someone else's. That's the concept known as Chayecha Kodman. Okay? I actually um, I had this question this, this past two weeks. I've been having shortness of breath. Um, I don't know. I have no other symptoms. I think it's just because anxiety, being home with my wife and kids, that can cause that. Has caused it in the, caused it in the past. It's not, I don't think it has anything to do with corona. But the question is, should I be safe and go get tested, even though there's not enough tests in the city? Okay. Would I, should I go and try to get tested just to be sure um, that I don't have corona, whatever, the, if it's relevant, whether I have it or not. But let's assume I, you know, there's someone in my household who's immune deficient, so I want to make sure I don't have it so I can quarantine myself um, away from that person. So do I go ahead and take, and take that test, even though according to the, there's very limited resources, that we, as we know, of the current tests. You can't be tested unless you have, in this, at least in Harris County, unless you have lower respiratory, you have to have at least two symptoms, and you have to have been exposed to someone with coronavirus. Otherwise, they won't even look at you, um, um, so as far as um, all the testing sites that I've seen, as far as I've heard from people trying to get tested. Um, so the question becomes, so should I go ahead and take care of my life? So meaning, what I was thinking about, and maybe we'll give a class in a subsequent week, was can I lie to get tested? I have to save my own life. So meaning, the only way they're going to test me is if I tell them that I have a fever and I have shortness of breath. I have to have at least two symptoms. So I, do, I was exposed, not to someone with corona, but people who, my, both uh, my children, were exposed, who are staying in my house now, were exposed to, to confirmed cases of corona. One is already out of quarantine, it's over two weeks, she's fine. My other child um, is still in his two weeks. Shabbos, uh, Shabbos will be the end of his two weeks quarantine. So now I, do I, I want to take this test. I have to save my own life, um, potentially. So can I lie even, tell them that I have more symptoms than I do in order to get the test? So what would you say for that? Raise your hand if you want to answer. One second, let me unmute you. Go ahead. Go ahead, Shim. It was, it was limited resources, you say. Hmm. Well, one thing is mothers are always let alive. Mothers are permitted to lie. Mothers are always permitted to lie.
Okay, so we're, we're, the mental health is a separate issue, meaning how much you're allowed to do to, for your anxiety, for anxiety purposes. But here the question is, there's two questions about it. As we're saying, generally speaking, the rule of thumb is that means my life takes precedence. If I can save my life, um, I can do that. Now, one, there's one question is, can you steal to save your life? In this case, you can argue, since, it's, since the, there's limited, the government is controlling the kids, whoever, the hospital, whoever they are, controlling them so my stealing if I lie to them they're only giving it to me with a stipulation that I had that I fit the criteria so that's one question which we're not going to address today and the second question is a more fascinating question which has come up throughout history which is can I save myself by endangering someone else because if I take that testing kit someone else who, who might really need it um, if I use it for myself someone else who might really need it is it can I could be endangering their life um, same thing with a mask, meaning if I, if, again, if I bought masks on Amazon, I don't have to give them up. Um, but uh, to, to whoever needs them, therefore, so I have a right to those masks. But, but if I'm going to take masks that will endanger someone else's life, meaning I, I now I go ahead and ask, they're giving out masks, and I take one, which I don't really need one currently because I'm not sick, and there are people who really might need them, like healthcare workers, who their life is truly endangered. So can I save my own life by endangering someone else's life? That would be the question. And this has come up. Um, and by the way, this is relevant to, to toilet paper, to everything when you're hoarding. You have to do, am I, have, do I have to be worried about the next guy? If I go to H-E-B and I'm buying, uh, you know, 25 rolls of toilet paper because I'm scared in two weeks we're not going to have toilet paper, or I'm, I'm hoarding masks, Yes, yeah, okay. We saw that meme. Right, but the question becomes, I might be endangering someone else by hoarding this. Am I allowed to do that? Okay. Yeah, so that's again, that would be stealing. That would be the question of stealing. I'm saying if you're taking it legally, but by it's, you know, it's, you have a, meaning technically I'm buying it or whatever the case is, but by doing that, I'm, I'm endangering someone else's life. So that, that came up. I mean, like we're saying, there's many cases, there's, a, there's two of us. Again, we're not going to really get into that, but, but more or less, um, since because of this concept of Chayacha Kodman, I have a right. To, to take care of my own life first. And I don't have to worry about your life. My life takes precedence. Okay, so if even for example in the Holocaust, there's, there's cases that in camps they would come in where let's say they, there was uh, you know, 20,000 people in the camp, whatever the case was, they were giving out these white cards which allowed you freedom, you know, or whatever the, in certain scenarios, but there was only 5,000 white cards. They'd come into Warsaw Ghetto and 5,000 people got these white cards, which means they can leave the ghetto and travel. And there's 30,000 people there. So if I take one of the white cards, I'm, I know someone else is going to die because, because I'm taking this card. So am I allowed to take that card knowing I'm endangering someone else's life? And of course the answer is yes. My life takes precedence and therefore I, have to, I don't have to worry about your life when it comes to putting my life in danger. Even if it's a suffix, that means even if my life is doubtful, um, if there's danger involved, because I'm a young person and healthy, 
and someone else is surely gonna die, I still am allowed to take care of my own life. My, life, my own life takes precedence um, over someone else's life. Okay, so that, that's what we're not talking about today. Um, so two people are raising their hands. We're gonna start with Eddie. Hold, I'm unmuting you, Eddie. Hold on. Go ahead. Uh, I unmute, sorry, okay. You're unmuted. Again, that's slightly different because over there, that's what we want to discuss. That's third party, meaning there's one, there's there's ten lifeboats and there's a hundred people. Who do we give those lifeboats to? So, so over there, it's not up to you. Whoever the captain makes the decision, whoever whatever protocol there is. One second, one second, one second. Let me find my point. We're discussing specifically. I have the mess. I bought them from Amazon. I've been hoarding them. One of those people who you know, what are they called? The people who you know think doomsday. They have bunkers in their in their. Preppers. So I'm a prepper. I have, uh, you know, two cases of masks in my garage from for the last 10 years. So am I obligated to give those up? And that's where we're saying there's no question. My life takes precedence. I don't have to give them up even though my life is a, is a doubtful danger. Your case is where you, a third party now has to decide between between the women and the children and the, and the men. Right, so, so again, so if, unless it's his wife or his mother-in-law, um, you, you don't, um, you, as we'll see, if I have, let's say I, the lifeboat is mine, I have access to it, I would not have to technically give it up to anyone. Woman, children, doesn't make a difference, according to Allah. Based on this uh, statement of Rabbi Kiva, your life takes precedence. Again, if it's your family, that might be different. But not only... Um, again, like we discussed last week in the Ridvaz, famous Ridvaz Shuva, not only are you not obligated to give it up, it could be you're not allowed to give it up. The Torah is telling you, your life takes precedence. I can't decide, it's not for me to decide that I can commit suicide, that I can give up my life. So you're not a hero, again, in Western law you're viewed as a hero if I give up the lifeboat. And in Judaism, you're, you're a pious fool. Okay, so now let's go to Shelley as a question. Keep it quick, Shell. Um, to can lie or steal to save your life. So that's a, that's a different question. I didn't address that. I mean, I mentioned it, but I, that's a whole different question. But the assumption is, um, I would say yes, meaning um, I, I think I would be able to lie to, if I really think there's a danger to me, 
my life or to someone in my household, I would be able to lie to get the test. That's my opinion. Again, uh, please don't quote me to any news stations about this. Um, so, so getting back to the, the, the third-party question, as we said, is really the, the main question here, which is when you have limited resources, how do you, how do you decide to apply it? How to apply it? So first we're going to talk more theoretical, but there, there are many, as we're going to see, so many different criteria in how to apply that. Um, and uh, so we're going to start with one of them, which is actually, uh, interestingly enough, relevant to Pesach and Parsha Chodesh, which we just read this, this last week. But, but one of the main criteria that we do find in Halacha in general um, uh, is, is a concept of proximity, which means and it sounds very strange from a, I think, a Western ethics point of view, and we'll explain what it means and how to apply it, but is that there's a concept of, that means the closest person um, to me, I treat first, okay? Um, and, and I'm going to read you from uh, Akiva Tatz, his book here, he says, Proximity. And this is based on a halachic concept, which we'll describe, which is called Ein Mavir and Alamitzvahs. Um, so it says, one of the most basic criteria in halachic triage, triage is given by the principle of Ein Mavir and Alamitzvahs. That one may not bypass a mitzvah or put it another way when all else is equal. Again, there's many other criteria that we'll see are applicable um, even in this situation. But when you have everything equal, it means everyone's the same age, everyone's going to has the same level of health, um, everyone has the same need. Like, let's say, in, in Ed's, there's only one lifeboat. So if all else is equal, um, obligations are be, to be discharged in their order of proximity. Um, like we said, this principle can be superseded by a number of others, but it is a basic starting point. The principle states that when, one more, when more than one mitzvah requires fulfillment, the one that is closer takes priority. So if two patients need attention, the doctor must treat the patient who is physically closer to him, who, let's say, came into his office, which that's really... Uh, um, also, first come, first serve is a certain level of proximity. But the one who came into your waiting room first, technically, he needs to be treated first. That's why we have, uh, that's why the cats of the waiting room, and you have to wait six hours to see your doctor. Um, while everyone gets, uh, contracts the virus in your waiting room. So if two patients need attention, again, the doctor must treat the patient who's physically close to him. He may not bypass that obligation for an equal but more distant one. All else being equal, one does not bypass a mitzvah. So this concept, I'll just explain a little, and then we'll try to apply it, is, is the concept known in, in uh, Allah as Ein Mavirin Al Mitzvot. Okay, it's, it's, it's actually, according to many, it's a biblical concept. Um, <laughs> some say that, uh, that it comes from, actually, um, the Alka Shimoni discusses it. There's, there's two sources for in the Torah. One is the Gemara and Yuma discusses that when the Kohen came to do the service in the temple in the morning, um, so you'd have to clean out all yesterday's stuff, the ashes from the Mizbeach, from the, from the altar. You would have to clean out the menorah, all the ashes, the burnt, all the refuse that was left from the burning, from all, everything that was burnt on the menorah. So the question is, what did he do first in the service? When he started the day. So this is known as Trumas Adeshen. So the Gemara Numa says that you actually have to start, it shows you based on the last week's, two last week's parsha as to where everything was situated in the Mishkan. So when he walked into the sanctuary, the Mizbeach was first, and the corner that he hit first, that's where he had to start cleaning from, cleaning out the ashes. And then after the, he did all four corners, he would go around the right, 
Then the Gemara says he would go to the menorah because the menorah you hit afterwards. So says the Gemara, how do we know this? Because there's a concept called Ein Mavirin Al Mitzvot, which means if the mitzvah comes in front of me, I need to do it right away, immediately. Okay, there's nothing to do with life, but ethics, nothing to do with anything. Totally unrelated topic. But there's this halachic principle called Ein Mavirin Al Mitzvot. Okay? And, um, and one of the sources, another source actually that's discussed extensively is from uh, Pesach, where the Torah uses a language about the matzah. It says, Ushmartem matzos. You shall observe or be careful with the matzos. Um, be careful with the matzos. So there's a play on words, so to speak. Um, it's, it's talking about when you bake the matzah, of course you have to make sure it doesn't become chametz. But the Yalk Shimoni, many others, quote so Gemara also, I believe, which says that you read it, it's a play on words. It's actually the word matzot and mitzvot are spelled the same way, exact same letters, without moving them around, just moving the vowels around. So it's really saying, Ushmartem esa mitzvot. Um, the al says, he says, just like we don't allow our matzah to get chametz, you can't allow your mitzvah to get chametz. That means don't allow your mitzvah to get leavened. If a mitzvah comes in front of you, you got to do it ASAP. You can't say, okay, I'll do it tomorrow, push it off to go visit that person in the hospital, I'm going to go do this, whatever whatever the mitzvah may be, it has to be done as soon as possible. Um, okay, so that's the the concept, and it's brought down by the Rambam, it's, it's actually codified and relevant to many areas of halacha. So meaning, what happens if I have two mitzvahs in front of me? How do I know, one second run, how do I know which mitzvah to do um, first? Um, so the, 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 the answer is you have to do the, the mitzvah that you hit first by the way it's even relevant to a synagogue it says if you're going, um, you're walking to shul you, halachically speaking technically you go to the first shul you see you, have to, you can't pass by a shul if you're walking to shul on shul if you pass by one shul you gotta go in because you can't bypass a mitzvah you have to do it um, as soon as you hit that mitzvah I'm just, Ron has a question one second Wait a second, oops. Start over? Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so we'll see. That's a good point. Um, well, Linda has a question here. Linda, are you with us or are you just writing questions? There's a question here from Linda. We'll get to that soon, but so so Ron is a good point. We're bringing in this this uh, esoteric halachic principle, a beautiful principle, but when it comes to life and death, as we know that life and death overrides everything. Um, so we'll get, we'll get, it's a very valid point. We'll get there, um, and and you could make that argument very clearly. So we'll we'll um, we'll discuss that. We'll get to that in a second. But let, I want to first discuss the principle and show you, and then we'll see if it applies here or not. Um, but again, so this principle is called Eimavir al Mitzvah, it's very applicable to many things. The Rambam says also when they would cut the, the wheat for the Omer, they would take the first wheat field when they left Jerusalem to cut the wheat, they would have to take the first wheat field they saw, because that's the halach of Eimavir al Mitzvah. Okay? Um, so, the, the, so again, this is talking about I have two mitzvot in front of me, and I don't know which one to do. Like you're saying, the co the Kohen in the morning walks into the temple, which, which he has to do two duties. Which duty does he do first? The one that he hits first, proximity. Okay, that's what we're saying. Um, so um, the question becomes: So there's there's what happened? There's a famous case. I think we might have discussed it in the past. 
and also by a written a response written by the Ridvaz like this. He says a guy was in jail um, for whatever reason. It doesn't give why he was in jail um, somewhere in a, a not such just country, and he was pleading. He used to go and plead that they should let him out. He wants to just for um, for you know whatever the case was fulfill a mitzvah, and he needs to get out of jail. He wants to daven with a minion. Okay, at the time. Obviously today, this we don't have him with a minion, just to be clear. Do not have him with a minion these days. Everyone agrees. You should not have him with a minion. But in this time, uh, this uh, the Ritvaz, this tshuva was written in the 1600s, approximately. So the question was, I'll just read you the, the tshuva here. It says, Sheila, Reuven ha'yechavush asurim. He was locked up in a prison. He couldn't leave to pray with a minion. And to do any of the mitzvahs. And he pleaded in front of the prison warden or the governor or Hegmon, they would not listen to him. He said, listen, we can't. They said, listen, he made them so crazy. He said, we'll let you out one day. You can choose any day of the year. You have one day, four low, you can go free. So he wrote a letter to the, to the Radvaz. The question is, which day should he choose to leave prison? Should he wait, should he choose Yom Kippur? Where Yom Kippur, as we know, is a major day of uh, uh, the holiest day of the year. Should he to daven with the minion to go to shul? Should he choose Purim, where uh, he has the Megillah and he could do other mitzvot, he could do Matan Levionim, etc. What should he choose? So, so that was the question here. So Ridvaz told him, because of this concept of Ein Mavir and Al Mitzvot, he says, he says, Masharol Lismoch Tanan Kaimlon Ein Mavir Al Mitzvot. You cannot bypass a mitzvah. Ein Cholik Bescholzeh. We don't care. More important mitzvah, more important day of the year, Yom Kippur, Purim, your wife's anniversary, it's all, all days. When it comes to a mitzvah, he says you have to do the first mitzvah that comes to your hand. So you have to get out tomorrow. If you can daven with a minion tomorrow and leave prison for tomorrow, that's the day you have to choose. Because of this concept of Eimah Virinal Mitzvah. So what you see from this Ritvaz is, and this might get to Ron's question in a second, which is, words, what happens if I have two mitzvahs that are maybe not created equal? So I... Um, we have a ventilator, let's say, um, and I'm a patient, but I'm less of a threat because I'm young and vibrant. Okay, uh, let's actually choose Ron. I'm not so young and not so vibrant. So, so, um, so you have uh, you have someone who's young and vibrant versus another patient who could use the ventilator, who's much more a much more serious case of pikuach nefesh. So, do you also say the principle of Ein Mavir Mitzvos here, proximity, proximity, or let's say the first one who came to the hospital, gets it, as opposed to, um, so even if it's the, it's the younger, vibrant patient, will get the ventilator, as opposed to someone who's coming at a later point who might need it more. Do we, do we not give the ventilator to the younger patient and wait for the older patient or someone who's, who's more immune deficient, etc.? Um, so what you see from this Ritvaz, one second, is he seems to be saying, we don't, we don't care about the severity. When you have a choice of two mitzvahs, we don't look at which mitzvah is more important. Yom Kippur is more important than just the regular day of the year. We don't say, wait till Yom Kippur to take that, that day of furlough. He says, go out tomorrow, even though the two mitzvahs are not, uh, one mitzvah is much more important than the other. I can wait till Yom Kippur. So you see this concept of advice, you, would, you ignore a greater mitzvah. Okay? Which would mean, maybe, again, leaving Ron's question out for a second about saving a life, but if you're applying that, applying that to ventilators, just because someone needs the ventilator more and there's more pikuach nefesh, let's say, quote-unquote, maybe that, it, according to Ridvaz, that wouldn't be applicable. Because we don't care. Eim Avir no Mitzvah, the first guy that presents himself to the hospital, he's now proximity, he's the one they have to give the ventilator to, or not. Ron, so I'm going to unmute you. Go ahead. 
Right. You're referring in Hebrew, it's called Tadir She'enu Tadir, Tadir Kodum. So Ron is presenting a very important principle, another principle, which tells you what, when you have a choice of two mitzvot, which one do I do first? It says the one that's more common, it's not more common. That's true. That is a valid principle, but I believe, again, that's when you're able to do both. Um, and we'll talk about that, it's a very good point you bring up. Because, again, there's, there's contradicting principles here, and the question is which one overrides which. So, so, Tadir Shena Tadir is applicable when, normally I think, when I could do both mitzvot, the question is which one comes first. Here we're saying technically it might be only, I could only do one. So then, which one do I do? Um, I, could only ha- I only have one day off. Do I pick a regular day or Yom Kippur? Because I can't do both. If I could do, let's say I would have two days, so then maybe you're right, I would pick the more common day, I don't know how that would work there, but I was meaning if I could do both mitzvot, so then that principle of tadir she'en tadir, tadir kodem, that the more common one takes precedence, is when I'm, you know, let's say today, uh, tomorrow's Rosh Chodesh, so there's Shachris and Musaf. So even if I'm davening late in the afternoon, it's the time for Musaf, I, da- I pray Shachris first, and then pray Musaf, because Shachris is more tadir, is more common. Um, okay, so that's where it would be applicable, but I could do both there. But you're right, let's say it's, it's, uh, it's 10 minutes before sunset, 5 minutes before sunset, I can only pl- pray one prayer, so the question there would become, which one do I do first? Um, so, I'm not sure how that would be, the, you know, it's, Tadir wouldn't work. So that's really, it's a very good point Ron's bringing up, because in this case of the Ridvaz, it really is a case where I could only do one. He's saying, I only have one day off of the year. And then, and so Ron's bringing up a very good point. Maybe the concept of Eim Avirin al-Mitzvot is only applicable when I can do two things and have a choice of two mitzvot. Which one do I do first? Proximity, the one that comes first, I do first, the one that hits me first. But if I could only do one, maybe you don't apply the whole principle either in that case of Eim Avirin al-Mitzvot. Okay, so, so that, but the, the, the Ridvaz clearly seems to be saying, even though I'm only going to be able to do one, if I do, uh, if I go to Minyan tomorrow, I'm not going to be able to go to Minyan on Yom Kippur. Okay, we discussed this a few months back with the same thing with fasting, where the doctor mm-hmm. tells a patient um, if he fasts, Tom Gedalia is a fast the day after Rosh Hashanah, a small minor rabbinical fast that we commemorate some, some assassination that took place in history, and then you have Yom Kippur. The doctor says if you fast on Tom Gedalia, on this minor fast, you're not going to be able to fast on Yom Kippur. So I don't remember who, which, there's a tshuva about it, we discussed a few months, a year ago or something, with that same issue, and, and they say the same concept here. You need to first choose, um, uh, they t- most poskim will say, fast on Tzom Gedalia, even though that would preclude you from fasting on Yom Kippur medically. So even though Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year, and it's a Doraisa, it's a biblical injunction to fast on Yom Kippur, Tzom Gedalia is a minor rabbinical injunction, but still they say very clearly, um, at least uh, well, what I remember from that class, unless someone remembers um, more than I do, please, please let me know that you have to fast some Gedalia and not Yom Kippur. So I think it's the same concept. Um, but but it's but uh, as most things in Allah, it's clear there are people who disagree. The Chayadam. Um, by the way, Neda, I realize we can't see you if you're raising your hand, so I'm going to unmute you in case you have any questions. Neda, you there? Okay. Okay, you're unmuted. Okay, good. You have no pets? 
Okay, good. Okay, so uh, so so there's there's a I found out halacha from the Chay Adam. The Chay Adam was um, a let me just brought him up on Wikipedia here. Let me just read it. His name was Avram Danzig. Um, he lived from 1748 to 1820. He was a rabbi, a legal decisor and codifier, best known as the author of the works of Jewish law called Chay Adam and Chachmat Adam. Um, so he, he was uh, he, a very, he wrote a very important halachic uh, sh- uh, sort of a bridge version of the Shulchan Aruch, and he writes um, very clearly that the concept of Ein Mavir Al Mitzvot, he says, is is applicable when when you have a mitzvah and it comes to your hand first. But he says very clearly that priorities in that mitzvah are important. Meaning. Um, I'll read you what he says. He says, he says, the low shaykh, the low mavir, now the shirotza base mitzvot. When you have two mitzvot, you have to do them. Kigon shirotza leniach tal to tefillin. Okay, this is actually uh, one of the places they apply it to. When you open up your talis bag, your tefillin bag, you really, we put our talis on first and then the tefillin shall yad and then the tefillin shall rosh. But it says, let's say by mistake you put your tefillin in your bag wrong and you first took the rosh out. So the Allah is, that's it. You have to put on your shal rosh first, your tefillin shal rosh. Because Eim Avir and Al Mitzvah. Once you touched it, and you, so now, Halach is Eim Avir and Al Mitzvah. Even, so you do it out of order. Same thing, if you, let's say, put, touch your tefillin before you touch your talis, you got to do that first, because of this concept. But he says, even though, let's say tefillin, I think everyone would agree, is a more important, in a certain sense, mitzvah than a talis. Talis is just a nice extra credit mitzvah if you wear a four-corner garment. Tefillin is obligatory daily. So, so he says still, um, it would be applicable. But, and he brings in actually Ron, you're just noticing now, he brings in your concept of Tadir. He says, <laughs> He brings Ron's principle that Ron mentioned, Tadir. Tadir Adif. But he goes on to say, um, somewhere here, I thought I saw it, that this is only applicable again if you could do both mitzvot. He says very clearly, if you could only do one of them, then of course the more important mitzvah will override. So let's say, like we said, it's, it's two minutes to sunset, so I could only put on my tefillin or a talit. So of course, I would, according to him, he's saying, you would choose the tefillin above the talit because the tefillin is a more important mitzvah. So we can't judge mitzvahs to a certain extent. So according to, to this, it might be very possible that... Um, one can argue that when you have a more serious case of pikloch nefesh, um, someone who needs the ventilator more, so even though you have someone in proximity, they would not get it because they have they have better chance of survival without it. They're less less danger. Okay, the possibilities are they're going to get healed without the ventilator. So according to the Chayadam, again according to Ritvaz, I would venture to say that you would not be you would you would give the ventilator to the younger person because he presented himself first and he's closer. But according to the, to the Chayadam, it would seem to me, he's saying a stronger mitzvah takes precedence. Again, can you define more pikoch nefesh as a stronger mitzvah? I'm assuming you can, but that's also arguable. One can uh, make that argument. So according to the Chayadam, I would venture to say it would seem like the person who has immune deficiency or they're somewhat deficient or the elderly person where there's more of a chance of death, they would, um, 
get uh, the ventilator first. Before Ed, Ed has a question, but before that, I'm just going to read. There was actually a case like this, which we discussed many moons ago. I'm going to read a few from his book here. It says, in Hadassah Hospital, around 60 years ago, at the start of the modern antibiotic era, eight children with meningitis um, required treatment. There was unfortunately only enough penicillin for two children, and the doctors approached Chief Rabbi Herzog for his opinion on how to decide which two children should be treated. Bacterial meningitis has a high mortality, and at the time, penicillin offered a very good chance of cure. This was certainly a life and death question. So again, you had a, a ward full of children. There was only enough um, penicillin for two children. Okay? So a real question that occurred again in Hadassah Hospital 60 years ago. Rabbi Herzog called Rabbi Moshe Feinstein in New York. Rabbi Herzog was the chief rabbi of Israel at the time called Rabbi Moshe Feinstein in New York, and they discussed the dilemma. Rabbi Feinstein indicated that the doctors should enter the children's ward, which again sounds, in today's world, you probably get arrested for this, and, uh, and give the medication to the first two children they, came, they encountered. The first child should receive treatment. That child may not be bypassed. Thereafter, a similar consideration would apply to the second, the next closest child. Thereafter, there will unfortunately be no medication left. Okay? So that's how Ramosha Feinstein said he's using this concept of Eim Avir and Al Mitzvot um, and literally applied it in that case of the penicillin. Um, now again, it's very clear we're, gonna, we're not going to have enough time this week, but there's a lot of discussion again of there are other criteria. There's a question of relatives, definite versus downfall danger. As we said, many versus few. In this case, all the children, were they're all in the same boat. They're all created equal. So we're only applying this concept, I think everyone would agree, as we'll see from maybe next week, if, if we're all still here, is that, um, is that, that um, 